Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Alyssa. And on today's episode, we are covering the Velisca Axe Murders. Yep, that's happening. <laughs> but before we get into that, if you didn't know, we do have our social medias, both Instagram and Facebook, History Explains It All underscore podcast, where we put down an archaeology in the news, a today in history, ask you questions, put up some polls. By the way, we do have a question for you. We just started, just started putting up a picture that either Melissa or I took of visiting someplace historical, going to a museum that we took, and we don't know what to call it, so we would like your input. Please reach out to us, because I'm running blanks on what to call it, and I don't know about Melissa, but I've been running a hard time, having a hard time with that one, but also contact us if you don't want to put in the comments. You can uh, email us at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Yay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about anything yet. My mind's been just overworked right now. Yep, mine too, and I'm not doing the greatest, so. Well, shall we get started? Or is there anything else you want to share before we go start? We do have a guest on. His name is Matt. He's been here before. Hi, everyone. Wow, that was a really exciting intro. He's been here before. This is Matt. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, I'm really excited about the guest we have on. I love it. I left work today to come home. He's been really busy at work. <laughs> We're both tired. All right. Should we get started? Yeah, I think so. So before we get obviously into the, the murders and the people behind the possible murders and the family that were unfortunately murdered, I'm going to give you a incredibly brief section of what life may have been like and around small town Villisca, Iowa between 1900 and 1912 when the murders took place. So Iowa became a state in 1846 and was the 29th state. And by 1900, the state itself had a population of around 2.2 million people and was also home to many railroads that brought immigrants and travelers alike to the state. And the state particularly, the, the manufacturing for the state were coal, the railroads and farming were the big mainstay uh, agricultural economic things that the state did. And because it was very much into farming, and we think Iowa potatoes, right? Or no, I'm sorry, that's Idaho. Brain, Iowa, Idaho, never get them right. <laughs> but it goes closer to where we are. Iowa's <laughs> closer to the east. <laughs> I know, I know. My brain just always thinks Idaho and Iowa. I always mix them up. But regardless, Iowa is also really big into farming and was a major producer of food during World War One when there was a lot of food shortages. So by 1900, there were also 20 colleges throughout the entire state of Iowa, most of them being private colleges. And like with very many small towns and farming towns, the people relied on the close-knit family communication and also as well as each other within the town too particularly for small towns even today, 
you're likely going to know most of the people that live there because there's not that many people. Villisca itself originally started as a settlement called The Forks, mostly because it was situated between the middle and the west Nottoway rivers. So it was in near the fork of the river. And then the town itself was laid out in 1858 by a man named D.N. Smith from the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad Company. And then Smith specifically named the town Villisca because he said it meant the pretty place or the pleasant view in the language of the natives from that area. Although some people say it means evil. <laughs> I don't know. There was a lot of uh, discrepancy on that one, but I'm well, sure it's quite a pretty place. Evil but in what language? Whatever the language of the natives that were there that probably got obliterated by the white people. Ah. Yeah. And okay. I, I never could find something specifically that said which it just said it was the in the language of the natives that had lived there okay that's what i don't know interesting mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure it's a pretty pleasant place with a nice view so regardless by the early 1900s Villisca itself was home to about 2500 people so quite tiny and by 1912 it was actually doing quite well I think there's even less people that live in Villisca today than there was in 1912. And by 1912, when the murders took place, it was a really, it was kind of a, a small minor boom town in a sense, because you had a lot of the railroad travel. So you had a lot of business and people coming in and companies starting up. So there were hotels, restaurants, various stores, theaters, and a lot of businesses that were based on the agricultural e economy from the area at the time. And the railroad was so significant, particularly in the area of Aliska, that its citizens would see probably 20 to 30 both passenger and freight trains pass through the town daily, which would frequently obviously add to the population, reputation, and economic growth of the city. That's, so a that's lot all I could find on what life was like in the Edwardian times of, uh, uh, of uh, Iowa. That's a lot of trains. That's a lot of trains, yeah. But America's really big. <laughs> it's not quite, I mean, I would liken it to maybe Palisades. Not well, quite as many trains, but still enough trains to keep the town going. Well, like you said, America is really big. We're basically half a continent, so. Technically, we're, it's the own, like North America is its own continent and we take up quite a bit of it. Like I said, about half of it. Yeah. Maybe a little more. <laughs> so I am going to talk about the Moore family. So the Moore family were the ones that were murdered. And it was June 1912 that they were murdered. The Moore family was made up of Josiah Moore, who went by Joe. His wife, Sarah Moore. Their children, Herman Moore, who was 11. Catherine Moore, who was 10. Boyd Moore, who was seven, and Paul Moore, who was five. Josiah was actually a well-to-do businessman in Villisca, and he worked at the Jones store in town. In 1899, he did marry Sarah Moore, who was previously Sarah Montgomery. Sarah was originally from Knox County, Illinois, and around 1894 is when she moved to Villisca. And along with them as a family there were also two other 
people that were discovered in the in the house. Uh, two children outside of the Moore family uh, were murdered that night as well, and they were Lena Gertrude Stillinger, who was 12, and her sister Ina May Stillinger, who was eight. Uh, they were neighbors, and they they were with the family that night. And that's all I have on the Moore family because there's just not much. Well, there's not much. If you go looking for it, there was not much. That's all they had. Wow. Yep. Okay then. <laughs> Come on, I did a lot more research for my other sections. <laughs> oh yeah, because there's not much on the Moore family. The discovery is short too, because there's not like a shit ton on the discovery, but. No, I do have some discovery notes in some of my sections, even though I didn't do discovery, but they kind of blend together when you're talking about what possibly happened during the time of the murders and then the discovery yep. afterwards too, for sure. So you, you'll expand upon that in the talk. So. Oh, I'm sure I will. <laughs> I, I think just in two sections alone, I take up seven pages of notes. Of course you do. <laughs> I always have to have something extra. Um, to, I, did you mention Josiah's hardware store? I forgot. I wasn't. I, jo I yeah, was. Joe's where he worked. Well, he worked for Frank Jones's hardware store, which mm -hmm. was an agricultural kind of base hardware store. And then after I think seven years of the two of them working, uh, working under Frank Jones, Josiah Moore decided to open up his own hardware store. This will get important later when we talk to suspects, but okay. Josiah Moore opened up his own hardware store. And this nowadays we have, I think it's called, I forget what it's called, but there's usually a clause now, especially when you, if you've got employees that gain clients and then they move on to something else or start their own business, there's some kind of clause going on that you won't take those clients with you. Poaching. It's a poaching clause. Something like that. Yeah. Well, John Deere, for those who aren't in America and may not know John Deere, is a very big, very long time agricultural business here. And they make a lot of tractors and things like that. Very important to farming, of course. So Frank Jones's hardware business had a very good John Deere contract, which I think actually Josiah Moore was able to acquire that contract. But then when Josiah Moore decided to start his own hardware business, he took that contract with him, as well as some of the other clients that he had made a connection with, and then had a rival business to Frank Jones. Frank Jones then having not as good as business anymore because his big client contracts were taken by uh, Josiah Moore. So that plays in a little later, just to give some background to that. That doesn't surprise me. Nope, not surprised at all. Nope. You're gonna poach where you can when you've got a new business. Well, true, but also when in terms of times when there were no laws against that. Absolutely. So in terms of the night before and of the murders, we'll, we'll jump into that. The night before the murders, which is funny enough because this, the, the murders took place sometime in the very, very early mornings of June 10th. I didn't even think about that when we chose this because we chose this randomly, right? So it's June 7th when we're recording this. I find that interesting. And also, I was thinking of something because uh, for the, you know, I do the Fun Fact Fridays for the channel, and I have one specifically that I'm actually going to post 
I was like, oh, it happened on the 9th. And they were like, no, it happened on the 8th. So I'll probably post it tomorrow. But I've sent you that uh, that meme about the Lindisfarne Viking attack. And I was like, oh, that's on the same day that this happened. No, that's a day or two off, but interesting. Yeah, interesting little thing. So in terms of the Moore family, the night before was Sunday, the 9th, June, 1912. And the family had gone off to the children's service at the local Presbyterian church that they attended and were also accompanied by, as we mentioned before, Lena and Ina Stellinger, two neighboring children that the kids probably all played together with. According to most of the agreed on timelines, the family left the church around 9.30 p.m. and the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters walked back to the Moore home, which was only about three blocks away. After getting home, it said that the kids had a snack of milk and cookies and then went to their rooms to go off to bed because it's kind of late anyway, right? You've got the oldest child in the entire house is 12, and that's one of the Stillinger sisters. So some unknown time, usually believed between sometime between 12 a.m. and 6 p.m., 12 a.m. and 6 a.m., the entire Moore family and both Stillinger sisters would be brutally murdered in their sleep. So according to one of my sources, the coroner had attempted to sort of create or reconstruct a timeline the following day by saying that the un, uh, it, it, trying to, to sort of recreate the steps of this of the murders and the suspect that was there. So the coroner would have stated that the suspect had taken an oil lamp from a dresser remove the chimney which i thought was kind of weird but maybe it's more of like a screen and then hid in the chimney i'm not really quite sure because i don't know the layout of the house very well but also that's an odd way to phrase it but maybe something in terms of architecture back then that we're not aware of right now so this is over 100 years ago uh but the suspect would have removed the chimney and then placed it out of the way under a chair bent back the wick of the lamp down to uh, or sort of bent it into two pieces to minimize the flame lit the lamp and then turned it down so that the flame was as low as possible only casting the faintest of glimmer and then hid inside the chimney also while still carrying the axe once the stranger came out of his hiding place he would walk past one room in which the two girls 12 and 9 the cylinder sisters lay sleeping slipped up the narrow wooden stairs that held the two other bedrooms, apparently ignoring one in which the four other, the four more children were sleeping in, quietly crept into the master bedroom where 43-year-old Joe laid next to his wife, Sarah. Raising the ax above his head, actually gouging the ceiling, which you can still see to this day, the unknown assailant brought the flat part of the ax back onto Josiah Moore's head, crushing his skull, likely killing him instantly. Then he struck Sarah with a blow before apparently she had any time to register or even essentially wake up to realize the assailant's presence. He then struck her and then leaving both of them either dead or dying, walked to the neighboring bedroom where the four more children slept. It was stated by the coroner that there were no evidence that anybody woke up during this time, which in and of itself to me is a little weird 
first of all, if you've ever been into a very old house, they're quite creaky for one thing. Lots of noise, quite creaky. And I, I, I just, I don't know. It's kind of hard to imagine someone going into a room of four children. There's two beds, two children per bed and nobody wakes up. But so you'd either have to really, I mean, yeah, I think it's kind of a two things. You'd have to really know how to handle the acts very swiftly and also just act really swiftly in order to bludgeon people to death without anyone else making a sound. Like you have to hit that person dead on the first time. Right. And in terms of going back to the whole gouging the ceiling thing, nowadays we have building codes that say that rooms usually have to start at least eight feet tall, if not taller, depending on what you're building. Like a normal room in a house would be typically around eight feet tall for a a bedroom on average. Back then, there were no building codes, really. And if you've ever been to an old house, particularly an old Victorian Edwardian house, they're short. They're terrible. <laughs> I think ceilings back then were probably on average about six feet in tall. I remember, mind you, this is like 200 years older, but I remember once I was in Salem and we went over to the Nathaniel Hawthorne's house. Now I'm short at about five foot. Yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne's house is totally awesome. Totally recommend going to Salem and checking everything out. It's fascinating and I love Nathaniel Hawthorne's house. But Again, I mean, it's much 200 years older, give or take, than the Moore house. But again, I'm five foot and I can reach up and touch the ceiling beams. Well, you wouldn't fit in that house, Matt. <laughs> I, would not. I had no problem walking through that house. But well, it still felt a little small, even to me. Well, it's perfect size for like people of yours and my height. We're five feet, five foot two. I'm five foot two. But people like five foot eight and above, their head would be hitting the fucking ceiling all the time. Well, like, right. But also back then, people were typically not above five eight. That was the average size. Yes, that's that's true. But for the few that were, it's kind of like, dang. Right. But also when you're thinking about like small, even if you've, I know you've been into some Victorian homes, but you've seen them. They're tall but they're very narrow houses. They're more like a ranch style house that goes from front to back and then up rather than out to the sides. Yes. So the staircases are very narrow. The hallways are very narrow and they're made of wood. So they're quite creaky. Tudor houses aren't very different in that sense. Their doorways are really small. Well, I don't think that in terms of architecture and building, I think, you know, throughout most of history, I think they were pretty narrow until building codes were officiated. Doesn't surprise me. No, I mean, even staircases as a whole, up until, I don't know, the 1920s when building codes were made kind of official by governments, staircases were quite narrow where you could barely go up. There was plenty, plenty of stories of people going up the stairs or coming down the stairs. There weren't even railings half the time in a lot of houses. And you would trip and fall, or if you were a maid, you might slip on your dress. And I mean, there was there was just tons of people falling downstairs because the, the also once one step might be far more narrower than the other one, and then you have a, a big step. So there wasn't a lot of consistency in building things. 
So ceilings were short, hallways were narrow, things were made of wood, lots of creaking. But it's just still, it, it just baffles me how, I mean, despite people sleeping, how a person can go through a small house in the middle of the night and bludgeon eight people without a single person waking up. Either, either they took some really strong sleeping pills or they were really, really tired. Well, it was probably 10 to 10.30 maybe by the time the children fell asleep. If they're off to bed by nine, if they're out of church by 9.30, they're home by like 9.45. They're probably asleep by 10.30. Well, I don't know about you, but as a kid, I slept like the dead, which is kind of what I'm like now. And when I sleep very, very heavily, it takes a lot to wake me up. I need about four alarm clocks to get my butt out of bed in the morning. So I'm the opposite. I'm a light sleeper and I'm a night owl. Yeah, I know you are. Always have been. Yes, you have. No, I mean, like always have been. I agree with you. (laughs) Even when I was five. I agree with you. I can't say no to that. I don't know. Keeping on the potential reconstructed path of the killer, after he bludgeoned all four of the more children in their beds, all in one room, it's, again, stating that no one woke up, no one made a noise, and the killer was quiet enough to also not make any kind of noise that would wake anyone else up to notify anyone else in the house. He then quietly made his way down the stairs and then killed the two Stillinger sisters. Now, in his reconstruction, the coroner also believed that the killer then went back up the stairs and then proceeded to bash in the heads of the entire six-person Moore family, particularly Joe Moore, to make them all unrecognizable. That sounds like a personal vendetta. We'll get into that in the suspect section, that's for sure. It's not a crime of passion, in a sense. It's very definitely premeditated. It sounds like it. Yeah. And then after literally beating their faces to a pulp to make them unrecognizable, particularly Joe Moore... The killer is then said to have taken bedclothes and or sheets to cover the faces of all eight people that he had just murdered, and then also taken fabric and covered all of the mirrors in the house as well, which was an old superstition at that point, where a covered mirror would prevent souls from getting trapped, if I remember correctly. And then it's said that he, it's always a he, went and took a two-pound piece of bacon from the ice chest, wrapped it in a towel from the kitchen, and then left it near the axe, which he essentially just dumped in the downstairs bedroom next to the two dead sisters. And then there's also a wash basin in the kitchen that had some bloody water in it, so it appeared as if the killer was at least washing his hands before he left. He then extinguished the lamp, leaving it on the stairwell, grabbing the house key and locking the door behind him. The key was the only thing taken from the house. The key? The house key. Yeah. 
that point, why even lock the door? Well, it's even speculated that sometimes people back then didn't even lock their doors. I mean, you hear about that a lot. Like people didn't lock their doors until like the 70s and 80s when we had the mass strings of serial killers. But it's also a small town. Most small towns, I don't think, well, I mean, nowadays, I'm sure, but a lot of the times throughout history, most people didn't lock their doors because small towns generally didn't have a whole lot of murders. That's true. But then why randomly lock this door? Why well, it's entirely possible that the killer may have come from another area where they did lock doors that's true didn't think about that if it's a habit you're used to it's a habit you're going to continue yeah so as i said it's believed that the murders took place anywhere between midnight and they say 6 a.m i'd say anywhere between midnight and no later than 5 a.m tops 4 a.m probably and i what? say that as we get into some other parts of the story yeah. because i'm gonna briefly talk about the discovery just just a couple quick points and then you can uh elaborate more on it as you like so oh. as far as we know the following morning around 5 a.m the moore's neighbor mary peckham noticed that the moore house was relatively quiet Again, it's kind of a small town. It's a farming town. People look after each other. And anything unusual was taken notice. And she had also noticed their, their neighbor at 5 a.m. that no one had also gotten up to take care of the animals or do their chores, which is something the children would typically do before getting ready for school. Well, three hours later, around 8 a.m., Mary had actually gotten concerned because by this point, the Moore house is still quiet. She has not seen a single child. And she's kind of, she's very concerned. She thought also maybe that everyone in the house had gotten really sick and no one had moved. So she wanted to go check up on them. And she went over, knocked on the door, no answer. Tried to look inside the windows. They were locked and shuttered so she couldn't see in. Now, again, this is also a time of likely not having electricity. So we weren't going to have phones. Or at least there was going to be a switchboard operator if you had a phone. But we're not talking, so obviously, cell phones or pay phones or anything at this point. And sometimes you would have to go to a business to use a phone or maybe to a neighbor's house that you knew had a phone because not everyone likely had a phone line in their house by this point, too. Especially in rural areas. So not able to get inside three hours later after noticing that the house is quiet. Mary then decided that she's like, well, maybe they're just all really sick and sleeping in. Uh, let me go take care of their chickens. So at least the chickens aren't starving and they're, you know, some of the chores can get done. And then I'll, you know, I'll help out. Now, in terms of the discovery of the bodies, it kind of goes one of two ways. Um, one story says that one of Joe's employees at his hardware store came looking for him because he hadn't shown up to work and knocked on the door and no luck then he goes to the home of ross moore joe's brother and then joe comes to open up the house and then another story says that ross moore just happened to show up at the house and then open it up because obviously he's got a key because he's family but either way ross moore is there and he opened up the house i have a third scenario oh well go right ahead 
So on the morning of June 10th, 1912, Jane Peckham, as you were talking about, noticed that the Moore family house was oddly quiet. I would too if this my neighbor had four kids and they all did chores and they normally got up and went to work and did all that stuff. Well, that and they were all under 10. Yeah. They're going to be noisy. Well, no, there was an 11-year-old. Herman was 11. Oh. The eldest. Still. Noisy. They're all, they're all little kids. Put it that way. They're not going to be quiet. So she decided that the best course of action would be to somehow get a hold of Josiah's brother, Ross. Well, she got a hold of him. And Ross arrived at the Moore family house around about eight in the morning that day. He entered the house and carefully began looking around. And he started on the lower floor, the first floor. And that's where he found two bodies covered with sheets. On the bedstead, there was blood, which Ross noticed. After he noticed both those figures in the sheets, he immediately exited the house and the scene. And he called down to his brother Joe's hard, hardware store. And he actually had them fest, fetch the police. In his words, quote, something terrible had happened, end quote. Marshal Henry Horton, also known as Hank, is the one who arrived on scene after the call. And what he also discovered was, quote, somebody murdered in every bed, end quote. And as you already said, the murder weapon was discovered leaning against a wall downstairs. It's kind of along the wall of the bedroom where the Stellinger girls were found. By the way, I noticed you didn't mention this. It was a partially cleaned murder weapon. Most of my information came from the Thinking Sideways podcast episode, which is ah. just an amazing, great podcast to listen to that anyway. Is. That it is. Yeah. Yeah, so the killer took the time to partially clean it. I'm not sure why you would partially clean it, but. Well, if you're, I mean, I mean, some thoughts on why you might cover somebody up if you're bludgeoning them is to cover them up and then bludgeon them would uh, allow you to kind of walk away clean because you're likely not to get a lot of blood spatter because it's just going to go onto the, the, the fabric except that the killer covered the dead after he had killed them, which in of itself is a little odd. Uh, usually that's more of a sign of, I'm not, you know, I, I just did a really horrible thing and I feel really guilty about it. Let me kind of hide it so I don't see them and maybe they can't see me kind of a thing. But also he's that whoever did this is gonna be covered in blood, which we also talked about the bloody water in the basin so my thought is obviously the, the killers to be covered in blood after bludgeoning eight people and then going back and bludgeoning them some more humans are blood bags <laughs> so obviously he's covered in blood he probably there were probably bloody handprints on the axe yeah probably. probably took a towel and tried to clean off his handprints even though technically fingerprinting was still in its infancy at the time it was a form of evidence that could still be used against you, even if maybe you weren't aware of it, you know that you made a mark somewhere and you need to clean it up. 
Well, it also, like we said, it seems like it was particularly a vendetta against Joe. And it sounds to me like the poor two Stillinger girls were just wrong place, wrong time. And also you're taking it out on the father and you just went around and horribly killed every single child 11 years old and younger. Well, and Sarah too, but I I can- I was focusing on the kids and that because so young- what what strikes me though is even as we'll get into in the suspect section, say this is Frank Jones that did some hitman hiring or something. Why not? If your vendetta is against just the one person, why not plan it so that it looks like an accident? The railroads are right there. Maybe you plan it to look like a railroad accident or an accident at work or just some random shooting or something and just kill Joe, why go after the entire family? Real hatred of Joe, probably, could be. If you hate Joe, you're going to, sometimes that projects onto the entire family that he's created. I suppose so. Oh, I'm done about the discovery. You can't say much more other than it was discovered. Now you, now it's your turn to talk about the rest of it. Oh, okay. Don't worry, I got stuff on the house, though. There's a lot on the house. I'm sure I've got some stuff for you too. (laughs) Okay. Well, in terms of also the discovery, a a brief mention before we go into suspects and theories, there is always related that there were two spent cigarette butts in the attic. And it's a really common theory that the killer had entered the house when the family was away and then hid in the attic and then moved throughout the house and then left from obviously the downstairs whether he went through the back door or the front door it's not exactly known but some more believe that the front door but then there are other stories that say there were no cigarette butts and then some say that he hid out in the master bedroom in the closet or as the coroner city, he could have hit out some like in in a portion of the chimney and hit in there. So I don't know. Most of the theories of terms of the, the root of the killer, I've always heard that they were in the attic. And then, but also if you think about it, the family were always found in the first and second floor in their in their bedrooms. And it said that when Ross went inside after he'd gotten the police to come they all then went around the house to identify the bodies that they could and then during the investigation someone went into the attic as well but i don't know it's it's just there there's a lot of speculation and then a lot of unknowns because there's a lot of different thoughts yeah i mean it was done in 1912 well in terms of the discovery it was incredibly botched up too oh really you think (laughs) well I, I guess she's more should... upon this. Oh, sure. Let's go ahead and do this because you know this kind of stuff happens today too. So, as soon as because again, it's a small town, everyone knows each other. When you hear that a local, fairly prominent family of six plus two visiting sisters, so eight people have died in one house overnight with no one knowing what happened, it's immediately a sensational story. 
So not only are you going to have all the police there, you've got the coroner there and then you've got the neighbors coming in and it was completely botched up from what I understand is because everyone's trying to get in to take a look at what happens because rubbernecking is a thing and people are always trying to check out crime scenes. And then people are trampling on crime scenes and then people, I would say it's 1912, so we don't have the standards of forensics like obviously like we have today so you it's not like you know this these people are going to go first to photograph the scene and then these people are going to go and collect the evidence and the police are going to wander around and collect evidence from outside and interview any of the family members the neighbors to see if anyone saw anything and get eyewitness testimony everyone's going in and out of the house and messing the entire crime scene up. So if there was any potential evidence, it was kind of, it was really botched up. That was always my understanding from hearing about this story. A lot of standards didn't, that exist today don't, didn't exist then. True, but again, small town, and it's probably one of the biggest news stories people have heard in a long time. Because oh. not a lot of things happen in small towns. That's why I don't live in one. Well, a lot of new stuff happens in big towns. Sometimes it doesn't make them any less safe or dangerous. Oh, no, I'm not saying that it, I'm saying that small towns are boring. Yeah, you're not a small town gal. Nope, been there, done that. Yeah. Did it, did it college town. I'm good. <laughs> so in terms of theories slash suspects, there's a lot. I am 100% positive that this will be a while. <laughs> it could be a few minutes. Yeah, there, there's seven on my list, possibly eight. Oh boy. <laughs> so um, yeah, sit back and enjoy this one. I will. <laughs> so first on our list is a man named Henry Lee Moore. Not any relation to the unfortunately murdered Moore family. Well, okay, good, because I was confused for a second. <laughs> not Ross Moore, Henry Moore, completely unrelated. I, I, again, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> unrelated. So prior to and after the Velisca murders, there were a string, a series of axe murders throughout the U.S. And in fact, nine months earlier, in September of 1911, six victims fell to an axe in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And October the following month, there was a triple murder in Illinois. And then not too long after that, there were the five members of the Showman family who were killed in Kansas. And then just days before the Velisca murders, a husband and wife were also axed to death in Kansas. Don't forget the Cleveland Torso murders or the New Orleans axe murders. There was it's like axe, it's, it's like guns today, but axes back then. Everyone had an axe most of the time anyway, because you were going out chopping wood. And it was just sort of one of those pieces of, it's like everyone has a broom. Back then, everyone also had axes. It was just something most people had in their shed. So it was an easy, grabbable, untraceable weapon. Despite all these murders being in different states, there were also similarities to each of the ones I just mentioned. Families that were killed in their homes via an axe, many of them also with an unknown or unknown assailants to this day. For Henry Lee Moore, there was a federal officer named M.W. McCleary who based on those cases 
made a statement that there might be a transient maniac, which was kind of the general term used prior to the coining of the word serial killer, going around murdering people with axes. And in addition to trying to link the Iowa murders with the other nationwide murderers, McCleary also points out that all the homes where the people were murdered were not far from major points on the Southern Pacific Railway, which is why it's thought that it was a transient jumping from one state to another on the railroad. Just running around killing people, apparently. Henry Lee Moore also worked on various railways. Lots of people did. It was a sometimes a steady job. It was a job that could take you from place to place. You can get a lot of different experience working on the railroads. And they're very popular, so it works. On December 17th of 1912, Moore tells his roommate he's going to be traveling to Missouri to go visit his sick mother. The following day, he claims that he arrived at his mother's house. And then he goes to the neighbor's house to ask if they'd seen his mother recently because he can find out where his mother was. They say, no, we haven't seen her, but she's probably just likely at home. So Moore then returns to his mother's house not too far away. And a little while later, he goes back to the neighbor's house, frantically telling them that they have to come over to his mom's house. And then something happened. Turns out both his mother and grandmother who lived together had been hacked to death by an unknown assailant with an ax. When the police arrived on scene, they began to question the neighbors as one would do. And they reported seeing Moore entering his mother's house several times that morning. And when they arrested Moore, linking him to the murders, he was covered in blood. Now, having claimed that he had arrived in town in Missouri that morning, the police actually would go on to discover that he was lying. And he'd actually been in town the following day, having rented a room in a nearby hotel under an alias. Moore would eventually be convicted of both the murders of his mother and grandmother, many believing that he just did it for the inheritance money. No surprise there. McCleary also believed that Moore was also behind many of the axe murders throughout the country, which he did by riding the rails, entering unsuspecting homes at night, and then killing all of the family members with an axe. McCleary also believed that Moore was a deviant who was lured by, as they said at the time, bloodlust and sexually, sexual, sexual mania, which kind of ties into our next suspect. How does it tie into the next suspect? Well, sit back and listen. Next on our list, number two, is Reverend George Kelly. Kelly was born Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly in England, and he and his wife moved to the U.S. in 1904. After being a Methodist minister for several years, Kelly decided he was going to switch over to being a Presbyterian member in 1912. The night before the murders, Kelly had actually asked to come down to Villisca to participate in the children's service. And at exactly, apparently, 5.19 the following morning, Kelly bought a ticket and boarded a train to return to his hometown of Macedonia and uh, the near, uh, next state over. Kelly began to be on the police's radar when he also began to write consistent yet incoherent letters to the police and surviving more family members taunting them. Sounds like a great guy already. Just a week 
after the murders, Kelly also came back to Villisca and tried to convince the police to give him an exclusive tour of the murder home. That doesn't sound suspicious at all. I'm sorry, can you repeat that last one? Did you just say that he asked for an exclusive tour of a murder home? Yes. He, he just basically was like, let me just put myself as a suspect on your list right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, as they say, a lot of serial killers will return to the scene of the crime, although sometimes they truly prefer to, I think, blend in at the time so they're not immediately caught, even though it's sometimes they probably want to get caught. But it's more of a game of, hey, look at me. I'm over here, which you can't tell because you don't know where you're looking at. But, you know, it's kind of in the same sense of people claiming that they did really heinous things whether they're already in jail or are, you know, just people will claim to, like the, the Zodiac killer. Obviously, we don't know who that was or which murders are exclusively tied to the Zodiac killer, and which ones are might be a copycat. But so many people said that they were the Zodiac killer, mostly just to get attention. But, you know, it's going to land you in jail when you are falsely claiming that you're a murderer. It's still going to land you in jail because it's a fraudulent claim. And it's misuse of the police department. So I, I, like, I don't understand that. I've never understood that. I understand sort of a cry or want for attention, but why is it worth putting yourself in jail for? So after trying to convince the police to give him an exclusive tour of the Moore home, unsuccessfully, there was a private investigator who actually wrote back to Kelly, because again, he's sending the police and local people of the town taunting letters about that he committed the murder and he has information and things like that the investigator wrote back to kelly asking him if he knew anything about the murders kelly responded to the private investigator with a very detailed letter explaining what he was doing the night of the murders and he stated that he had been walking home that night after because again he participated in the children's service so after the service is done he left the church he was walking back to his hotel when he thought he had heard the sound of an axe and then the person who he thought was the killer apparently stepped out onto the porch of the moor home now again stating that the murders likely took place between 12 and 4 or 12 and 5 in the morning because the, the neighbor was up at five o'clock in the morning and the children's service probably ended close in around 9.30. How late is he staying at church for? Is he staying at church until 4 o'clock in the morning? And then happened to be walking by the Moore home? Is the Moore home in the direction of the hotel that he's staying at? I actually couldn't find that answer. I didn't look that up. But um, it's really unusual. And then, of course, you get to the part where he says that he heard the sound of an axe. Well, if the axe murders were taking place inside of a house and no one was woken up to hear it, clearly the killer was being rather quiet about it. So how can he hear the sound of an ax? And if he happens to be passing by the Moore house, and it's obviously midnight or later, it's dark out. I don't know that there was a full moon. There's no likely any electricity or like major electricity. You're, I mean, they're not gonna have porch lights like we have today. Are you gonna notice somebody standing on a porch are you gonna be able to officially recognize them as the actual killer of the crimes no they're gonna blend into the darkness well right but also how do you hear the sound of an axe from outside on the street 
Yeah, unless it's thunking on something, like chopping wood, you're not. Right. He claims he heard the sound of an axe thumping, but the axe was used inside the house where nothing was disturbed except for the bodies. Nope. So not buying that. Don't believe it. Mm -mm. So after he was reporting this, like writing the detailed letter about this back to the private investigator, the investigator turned it over to the police. Now, the police weren't sure if what Kelly said was actually true, because apparently Kelly also had a history of erotic behavior. And, well, I mean, a, a term used by that point that wasn't exactly specific, mental illness. So, though he was considered to be a possible suspect, he wasn't detained by the police. And he kind of fell off their radar for a bit. That was until about two years later in 1914. This is when Kelly gets really off the rails. So in 1914, again, he's living with his wife. He's a Presbyterian minister. He places a newspaper ad for a stenographer. Someone maybe not know what a stenographer is, because I don't know that we have too many of them anymore. It's somebody who writes notes as you're talking, like you would in court. And according to the reports, a young woman answered the ad, saying that she was interested in the position. And then Kelly responded back to her letter about it, saying that the job was hers if she wanted it under one condition, that she would be willing to work naked. What? Why? Because Reverend, Reverend George Kelly was a sexual pervert. Of course he was. I mean, a possible pedophile. Can I just mention church? Church reverend normally equals pervert in my experience and understanding. And, um, you know, wherever you want to go with that one. I'm just saying he asked for a stenographer, but said, you can be my stenographer, but you have to work nude. I want a naked woman being my stenographer. <laughs> Obviously, um, shocked by the letter, the woman immediately turned it over to the police because it's 1914 and that's very lewd and obscene behavior. Mind you, it's still lewd and obscene behavior. And then the police began to actually catfish Kelly, which I thought was really interesting. I I believe I'm using the term catfish correctly in this. By pretending to be the woman that asked about the stenography position and writing Kelly letters back about the position. So they were, yeah, or is it fishing or catfish? Well, it's the same thing. I get confused sometimes, but he's new words but anyway so they were trying to lure kelly out kelly by pretending to be the stenographer woman who turned down the position but by responding to him pretending to be the woman and over time kelly would write back to the woman often with sexually explicit requests and eventually the police would arrest kelly on the charge of sending sexually obscene material through the mail it may still be a thing today too yeah oh no it is okay he would be taken to trial over this charge and he would be sentenced to be guilty and the judge would actually sentence him to serve time in a mental institution because apparently he's he's deemed to be a sexual maniac not a surprise there so by 1917 the suspects for the moore and the cylinder girls had kind of petered out and they focused again on Kelly. Now, one day they brought him in for some interrogation in Villisca and continually 
interrogated him for pretty much almost a whole day. And back then there weren't Miranda rights or anything like that. I mean, there were also, there was a lot of coercion back then. If there is, I mean, there's still today too, but it was even worse back then. Now, eventually, Kelly broke down and confessed to the murders. And would you like to hear his reasoning for confessing to the murders that he told the police? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I would. He said, God told me that I needed to kill everyone and the more home. And that he had done the killings whilst he was in a trance. I'm not sure that most people are aware they're in a trance when they're in a trance and then remember that they were in a trance. I'm not sure about that either, but no, you did them yourself. Don't be using God as an excuse. (laughs) That is unbelievable. That is uh, kind of typical for some people. Faith has become such a huge factor in everything that well no in this case our idea of free will is basically gone well i mean yeah in this case i think it's more of a cop-out instead of saying i did it of my own volition uh god told me i needed to do it instead of taking responsibility for your own actions you're blaming god for it yeah he wasn't gonna confess to doing it himself well no in either instance he'd still be found guilty if he was guilty it yep. wouldn't matter whether you took the blame on yourself or God. No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a version of a coward's way out. Yeah, for sure. Eventually, Kelly would be charged with one of the killings and only the charge of killing Lena Stillinger. None of the more children and not her sister Ina, just Lena. And he would be taken to trial. I'll get to it in a second. I saw that face of yours. It seems that he was charged specifically with Lena's death, not only because of the sexual nature of the letters from before, but also because he had sent taunting letters to the police and the surviving family members. He also had a reputation as being a peeping Tom and also had a reputation for asking underage and teenage girls in his parish to pose nude for him. And Lena was 12 the oldest and she was the only one found where she was i don't know if anyone else slept without their underwear on i mean back then you didn't have a whole lot of clothes so i don't know how common it was to sleep with or without underwear but lena was the only one to have been found with her nightgown above her waist exposing her lower half and obviously without underwear on so there were speculation that she may have been assaulted but it also there are no pictures of the death uh there there are no pictures or at least if there are they're not released to the public and there's no descriptions no diagrams of where the bodies lay and again remember this the all the children's everyone slept in bed of two people the husband and wife slept in one bed and then the more children they had four so two slept in two different beds and then he had the cylinder sister sleeping in the one spare bed in the bedroom downstairs so the sisters slept in the same bed so it's not certain exactly what positions the girls could have been in at the time that they had been killed possibly if lena was kind of maybe she fell off the bed or or she was falling down from the bed and at the time 
that she was found maybe in, in the terms in the, in the sliding off the bed, her nightgown rode up. So it's not specifically known if she was assaulted, but because of the way that she was found and Kelly's general reputation of being a pedoph- potential pedophile, peeping Tom and sexual deviant, that's why they charged him with the death of Lena Stillinger. That still doesn't make any sense. Well, it's also speculating because if he's constantly looking, if he had a reputation for asking underage and teenage girls to pose nude for him, girls that he'd known that probably went to his church services, that he, the night before at the children's service, had noticed Lena Stillinger and kind of became infatuated with her and possibly followed them back home, snuck into the house and just made it a major crime of passion. But at the same time, if you think back into what happened in the house, it was premeditated. It took a while. And there are, and in one version or another, there is a path in which the killer took throughout the house. So it's not a crime of passion in terms of spontaneity. It was absolutely premeditated and planned out. Or at the least, the person who did the killing had done it before. That would seem right. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Mm-hmm. So during the trial, the evidence against him and the death of Lena Stillinger were the letters he'd sent to the police about the murder, his confession to the murders and the details he put into it, as well as a bloody shirt that he'd sent out to be laundered a week after the crime when he is back home in his city of Macedonia. Apparently, there were also witnesses at the trial who said that they had heard him talking about the murders on his ride back to Macedonia, which he had taken a full three hours before the bodies were even found. Remember, he boarded the train at 5.19 a.m. The bodies weren't found until just after 8 a.m. Definitely makes him suspect. Mm -hmm. He also claimed to have had an alibi for the night of the murders. This is a good one. He was asleep. That's his alibi. Mind you, that, I mean, it's an alibi for lots of people, depending on what the crime is and all that. But this was one that couldn't specifically be verified by the people he was staying with. Kelly claimed that on the night of the murder, he was staying in town at the home of Reverend William J. Ewing. And on the night of the murder, Ewing claimed in court that he had had shown Kelly to his room around 11 p.m. And that Kelly had left town by the time the Reverend Ewing had gotten up the next day. So we we can't verify that he was actually in the house the entire time either. We just know that he was shown to his room around 11 p.m. And he was gone before the Reverend got up early the next day. Now, according to the coroner, the blood spatter in the home seemed to indicate that the person who did the killings was left-handed. Kelly was also left-handed. Now, a big piece of evidence that was in the favor of Kelly is that he was five foot two and 120 pounds. That's like me. Yeah. I weigh a little bit more. Yeah. So imagine an axes are fairly heavy for a reason. Oh yeah. It's like, it's literally, it's it's a pendulum kind of motion when swinging an axe. They're heavy for a reason. So imagine you picking up an axe and sneakily going up and down the stairs, killing eight people. I, I can't walk sneakily. I'm sorry. That's not feasible. I, I am like my dad where I stomp like I'm almost like T-Rex. 
<laughs> so that wouldn't be feasible for me. And with an ex, it would be even worse. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't see you walking through a house, wielding an ax, killing eight. I mean, first of all, even if I, you would do it, which you never do, but just some of your stature and frame, I don't see picking up an ax, walking up and down narrow stairways, killing eight people, bashing their heads in with, with, the, with an ax. I mean, I don't think I could physically. It's too heavy. This guy, on the other hand, it might not be too heavy for. Can you lift an ax, Matt? I can. Um, can you swing an axe relatively well? I can. I don't know if I want to be like saying this out loud now. Everybody run! Like I used to take pride in that sort of thing. Now I'm like, man, sounds creepy. <laughs> I mean, you're, I don't. You're what? Five, eight, five, ten. Five nine. Yeah. Five, okay, there we go. Right in though. Um, so imagine you were Lauren's height. But a guy, which, I mean, physically just tends to have more strength because uh, particularly back then, they did a lot more heavy lifting chores. Do you think that you would have the strength to wield an ax to kill eight people going up and down the stairs at five foot two? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I don't think so. Maybe. Okay, I just looked it up. And then depending on the ax, they're anywhere between, well, that's a felling ax. I mean, that also does depend which type of axe you're using. True. So I just Googled it, and it said the head of an axe is anywhere usually around three pounds. That's not the entire axe. So if an axe head weighs around three pounds, we're talking seven pounds, depending on how sturdy the wood is and the construction of it. Mm -hmm. And then having to swing it over your head. Yeah, that's in pendulum style. That's going to use a lot of motion. Nope. Yeah. And again, think of the very first one where he went and struck Josiah Moore. The axe gouged the ceiling, which means the ceilings were relatively short, even if you're someone at five foot two and you're swinging an axe, which probably on average is two and a half feet tall from, from top to bottom, maybe three tops, depending on the axe. So I don't know how tall the ceilings are and the Moore house, but I can guarantee they're under eight foot or I'm very likely gonna be under eight foot and you're gouging the ceiling. So again, think of that though. If the, the killer gouged the ceiling with just the one, one of the very first strikes against Josiah Moore, I can imagine there might be other gougings in the ceilings and the other rooms too. I can't imagine one room would be any shorter than the other. Yeah, but also, I would think there would be more gougings right above Josiah more than there than than that because, I mean, he did go back to bash his head in some more. True. Well, yeah, but I'm still saying that I don't think that the rooms would all have different heights. I would expect gouging in, in all the rooms in one instance or another. So anyway, uh, back to Kelly. We'll finish this off after. So Kelly was, again, arrested and tried for the death of Lena Stillinger based on all of his sexually explicit letters, sexually explicit mail uh, letters through the mail, and his reputation as a peeping Tom and asking girls for nude photos. The jury went to deliberate during the trial and came back deadlocked, 11 to 1, 
in favor of acquittal because it's all circumstantial evidence, but it's not enough to specifically pinpoint that he had been in or anywhere near the Moore house at the time of the murders. And then he was acquitted, put back on trial again with a new jury, also acquitted the second time. And with that, the investigation kind of stopped really because they now had pretty much no other suspects at this point, although maybe one or two later on down the line, which I'll get into. But it is believed by some that after the local police looked into the next suspect on the list and their lists getting shorter and shorter as the years go on, they turned their attention to Kelly mostly as a scapegoat to try to pin it on somebody. And they knew Kelly was in the area of time because he had been at the church service the night before and he had a reputation of being a sexual deviant, which back then meant that you were going to commit horrific crimes because, you know, things were weird. Now, our next subject suspect on the list is none other than one of the most prominent people in the entire town of Aliska. Frank Jones, the owner of the hardware store that Josiah Moore worked for. He also helped to open the town bank and apparently had also spent 25 years as the superintendent for the Sunday church at the local Methodist church. Keep in mind, so Frank Jones is Methodist, the Moors were Presbyterian. Some little bit of a rivalry right there too. So at the time of the murders, Frank Jones was also serving as the state representative and would eventually go on to be a state senator too. As I mentioned before earlier in the podcast, Frank Jones was Josiah Moore's boss for probably in around, I think, seven years before Josiah would decide to open his own hardware store in the same town, both of them becoming rivals to each other. Jones obviously taking the John Deere contract, I'm sorry, Moore taking the John Deere contract away from Jones causing Jones to lose a a fair good portion of his business. And obviously this led to a major animosity between the two men, so much so that rumor had it that anytime the two men passed each other in the streets, they moved to either side of the road to avoid being anywhere near each other. It was also speculated that Moore was having an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law. It was also speculated that Moore, Josiah Moore, was having an affair with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law. Oy vey. I don't know if this is verified, but it's speculation. Oy. Mm-hmm. Because back then, it was switchboard phones. You can just make a private phone call and just call one line to another. They had to patch you through. So if you made a switchboard phone, the operator could actually listen into your phone call if she wanted to. And if there was something going on that needed to be told to somebody else in the town, she would probably tell it because that's generally how gossip happened. That's how you found out gossip. That's how you reported gossip. So there were apparently or possibly stories around that Josiah Moore was in touch with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law and they would meet up and the rumor kind of spread throughout the town via the switchboard operators or at least possibly now Frank Jones was never actually on trial for being the murderer in fact 
none of the suspects on this list were on trial except for our last one, George Kelly. He was the only one put on trial for any of the deaths. But Jones, being a prominent member of the town, he wasn't going to be taken to trial anyway. It's more, it's believed more so that he was the money behind it and had hired a hitman to take out Josiah Moore and his family. The person thought to have been hired by Jones was a man named William Mansfield. Mansfield is also suspected to have been a big serial killer of the time. A private investigator at the time named James Wilkerson believed very much in this theory. And he also believed that he could tie Mansfield to all the other ongoing axe murders in the country at the time. Now, due to Wilkinson's, Wilkerson's belief and his investigations into this, he'd actually, over time, put up several posters in the town of Aliska saying that Jones was responsible for the death of the Moore families and the Stillinger sisters. And because of this, which obviously put a, a big damper on Jones' political career eventually, too, Jones took Wilkerson to trial or to, to court for defamation in 1916. Wilkerson actually won the defamation suit because the jury claimed that it did not rise to the definition of slander. But there was eventually a grand jury convened to indict Mansfield. Unfortunately, the records for the grand jury are closed to this day, but we do know that Mansfield was released because there was a receipt showing that he was out of state the day of the murders. The defamation case and the rumors about Frank Jones would also, as I mentioned, end up ruining his political career, uh, but he was never made a viable suspect for the murders, but most people believe that he was the money behind it and hired him. Suspect number four on our list is William Mansfield. So July 6th of 1914, Blue Island, Illinois, there was a horrific axe murder of a family going along with this theme. The father, Jacob, his wife, their daughter, and granddaughter were all horrifically murdered by an axe. There was one survivor from this incident, the son-in-law, William Mansfield. Mansfield, turns out, was out of town at the time of his family's murders. Coincidence, maybe? Hmm. Mansfield was also rumored to be making trouble, which I don't... Depends on your version of trouble. He was known to be a union organizer, which was really good for the workers, not good for the corporate, because corporate corporations don't like unions. And Bansfield was trying to make things better for the workers, and the corporations were like, nope, 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 nope. We're gonna put you in jail. We don't like you. You know, the very Gemma Hoffa or Jimmy Hoffa kind of a thing. Eventually, as I mentioned, he was convened with a grand jury, but then released because there was evidence saying that he was not even in town at the time of the Velisca murders. Eventually, Mansfield would go on to sue Wilkerson and his detective agency. Mansfield would eventually win the case and a sum of $2,200 or, in today's money, just over $50,000 for a defamation lawsuit. And then after that, Mansfield was dropped from the suspect list. Number five is a woman named Faye Van Gilder. And I don't know if it's Joe Riggs or Joe Ricks. It's kind of hard, like, I, I think it's Riggs. Um, Faye was the 16-year-old niece of Sarah Moore, immediate family member. After the murders, 
she reported to the police that she'd seen a strange man in the Villisca town area the day before the murders, and he had been demanding to know where the Moore family house was. So obviously he was not familiar with the Moore family. She'd mentioned this information to her aunt, Sarah Moore, the day before her aunt died and was told by Sarah that Sarah had seen the man around town as well and they, their descriptions matched up and both women believed that the man was acting very suspiciously. During their investigation, the police would also discover another local of the town. We don't know specifically who, but they say that they also saw this same man asking questions about the Moore home and the Moore family the day before the murders. On June 10th of 1914, so two years to the day afterwards, Ricks was seen getting off a train. I'm sorry, 1914? Sorry, June, twin, June 10th, the day of the murders, 1912. I'm like, where's my brain here? He was seen getting off a train in Monmouth, Illinois, and his shoes were covered in blood. Apparently, it was enough blood for the passengers getting off a train in Monmouth, Illinois, to contact the local police where Ricks was detained. When they asked him about his shoes, he told the police that he acquired him via a trade with a tramp on the train. Why you would do a trade with someone for a pair of bloody shoes is beyond my comprehension. And then obviously not ask questions. All right, sure. Not buying that though. After his detainment and the statement from the niece, Faye was taken to Monmouth to see if the man that they had in their custody was the man that she claimed to be lurking around town the day of the day before the murders. After looking at Ricks in the station in Illinois, she couldn't tell if that was actually the man and told the police that that wasn't the man that she saw giving Ricks off the hook. And because she wasn't correctly able to identify if this was the man that she had seen, the police let him go and he was never a viable suspect after that. He was just a weird guy getting off a train with really bloody shoes. That's not creepy at all no now the next one is an interesting one they're all interesting it seems <laughs> that's that's fair i love me some true crime so much i know this is your section on purpose oh yeah i know yeah i mean you left it for me on purpose i chose it purposefully because i know it's gonna have a fun time so suspect number six on our list is a man who goes by either George Myers or Leroy Robinson. I think his name is actually George Myers and Leroy is his alias, but you might find him under both names, but often he's referred to as George Myers, not Michael, George. Anyway, um, so the setting, if you will, is March 28th of 1931. Scene. I wrote this out a little fun. George is sitting in a jail cell in Detroit, Michigan, after having been arrested for a burglary attempt where he apparently found himself trapped in the house during his attempt, at which point he was arrested and taken to jail. So not a good burglar. While he was sitting in the jail in Detroit, police would receive an anonymous letter that, quote, stated, if you go to the Wayne County Jail and interview a man named Myers, you will learn something about a murder in Villisca, Iowa, 19 years ago, a particularly horrible murder. Notice the singularity in that letter, not murderers, 
a murderer. Unusual. Yeah, especially since it was eight people. Mm-hmm. Well, there, I mean, depending on, again, it's over 100 years now. People had ways of describing things back then that may not make sense to us today. Perhaps they grouped it all into one big murder because it happened at once rather than referring to people singularly within the house. Yeah, eight people were murdered, but it was a murder scene. Maybe that's what they were doing. After receiving the letter and confirming that these murders took place, because again, it's Michigan and Iowa, they're not far from each other, but they're not in the same state. The police would go to interview Myers. Initially, Myers denied ever even being in Galiska, but eventually he would confess, probably also under coercion. The papers at the time published his confession, and from it, he says that in June of 1912, he was in Kansas City, which was two hours south of Aliska, and he was approached by an unknown man. And the following is actually a quote from his statement. I just got out of jail, I guess. I was having a drink when a man walked up and looked me over. After a few drinks, he told me that there was a family in Villisca he wanted to get rid of and that it was worth $5,000 to be done. I agreed to do it. He said he didn't care how it was done, except not done by shooting, as it would make too much noise. According to George, after agreeing to do the murders, he stated that he met the man later in Villisca on the day of the 9th. The mystery man then gave him $2,000 in 1912, so that's a lot of money, and said to him, I will give you the rest tomorrow. George then, in his confession, quoted saying, I walked around for a while and found an axe. I picked it up, thinking that it would be a good thing in the killing. That night, I'd gone into the house with a knife. I saw a man asleep in the downstairs bedroom. I hit him once with an axe. His wife moved a little, so I hit her. Then I walked upstairs and saw four children in bed. I hit them with the blade side of the axe. Then I ran out of the house, dropping the axe on the way downstairs. He missed the two Stillinger girls. and he missed a lot. And the mom, Josiah, and, and his wife were upstairs, not down. Exactly. That just tells me he didn't do it and he's bullshitting. Exactly. Like he missed quite a lot. He, he hit on some points, but missed quite a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he also didn't run out of the house dropping the axe. We <laughs> know that that was found right by the Stillinger girls, right outside their room. This guy's full of it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So as we just mentioned, there were quite a lot of inconsistencies. Also forgetting to mention the Cylinder Sisters, for sure. George Myers also goes on to state in his confession that the next day, the 10th, he went to the meeting place to meet with this unknown mystery man to receive his other $3,000 he was supposed to get for his hitman murder. No, he got two the first day. He was supposed to come back and receive the following 3000 but this mystery man never showed up. So George then said that he had just left town abruptly and was also quite angry about it. Mind you, I think anyone at that time having $2,000 to pocket 
probably shouldn't be quite that angry. Although if you're going to get another $3,000, maybe a little bit, but that's still a heck of a lot more money than most people would have. I think $2,000 is probably a lot more than some people would make in a year at that time. But if I'm wrong, somebody let me know. Now, because his confessions and his statements were mostly incorrect and his descriptions are unhelpful because it doesn't answer all the questions, he was never officially looked at as an actual possible subject or suspect. It was just based off of the anonymous letter. We don't even know where the letter came from. And again, it stated a murder versus eight murders. Eventually, though, remember, he's in jail for burglary. He will be convicted by the jury for the burglary and then sentenced to 15 years in jail. And that's where we leave off with suspect number six. Suspect number seven is a man named Andrew Sawyer. This one is crazy. And I mean, actually crazy. Thomas Dyer of Burlington and Iowa is a foreman for the Burlington Railroad Company that I mentioned before. In 1912, one day, he's approached by a man named Andrew Sawyer, who apparently is a transient who's looking for some work. Not super uncommon at the time. Dyer would go on to describe Sawyer as clean-shaven, wearing a brown suit, his shoes were dirty, and his pants were wet upon first meeting him. He also said that Sawyer slept in his clothes and kept to himself. Also described as having mad glassy eyes. So the guy was just like crazed eyes look. But that's not the most important description you're going to get about Andrew Sawyer. You ready for this one? Andrew Sawyer. I mean, if you got, if you got, if you're transient, you've got one change of clothes, you're going to sleep in those clothes. That's not uncommon. Mad glassy eyes. I mean, that, that could come from a bunch of things. Maybe the guy was a drunkard. Who knows? Sawyer was also known to carry around an axe and also sleep with it. And I don't mean sexually. I meant just like, like a pillow, sleep with it, a gun under your pillow kind of a thing. <laughs> Sorry, I realized when I said sleep with it, 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 it probably came out a little wrong, but... <laughs> Actually, I didn't go towards sexually. I literally thought you meant like gone under pillow next to bed kind of situation. I don't think my mind would have gone there either had it not been brought up, but. I'm sorry. Okay, then. For the first time during this episode. I missed that what? I said at least we left for the first time during this episode. There's not much to laugh at. But exactly. I'll see if I can make some humor later. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, according to the time that he worked part-time for the railroad company under Thomas Dyer, he would sleep in his one pair of clothing and also sleep with his axe. <laughs> I guess that left me. I love it. Okay. So according to Thomas Dyer, Sawyer would also often brag to him and others on the construction team about the Villisca murders and how he, quote, got away with them, often talking about his route away from the house and the footprints he left behind that apparently nobody noticed or something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, this guy's just a little weird. miss bloody-ass footprints? We could change. Again, the crime scene was so screwed up, we don't know if there were bloody footprints. I'm going to assume with the amount of bludgeoning 
there were bloody footprints. Oh, I'd absolutely, absolutely. No, it's a second pair of shoes to change into, which is unlikely at that time. You're, and he walked up the stairs and down the stairs. There's going to be bloody footprints, at least on the dang stairs. He walked up, down, walked back up, and then back down, and then out the house is the typical route that we think. Yeah. Or it's possible he went around the house barefoot and then put the shoes on as he left, because I'm pretty sure most people back then also would not have been walking around the shoes, walking around the house with dirty shoes like a lot of people will sometimes do today. So that's also a possibility. But I can imagine, though, with wooden floors, you may not always want to walk around barefoot, especially if it's blood. Blood is slippery. A narrow staircase, slippery liquid, you're going to fall. So who knows? After interviewing Andrew Sawyer for some of the railroad work upon first meeting him, Dyer quickly realized that Sawyer had lied to him about his experience on different parts of the railroad. So when initially they gave him work on the steam engines, it was very quick to notice he knew nothing about steam engines, even though he claimed that he did. So next, they had him working on sharpening the piles that would be driven into the ground for the railroads. Sawyer was known to take his axe that he kept with him and use the axe to sharpen the piles and apparently would do so very well and also very quickly. So he was incredibly skilled with his axe and also obsessed with the ballista murders. Now, after seeing his display with the acts, his obsession with the crimes and claims about having done it, along with his crazy behavior, the foreman eventually contacted the local police. The police interviewed Sawyer, but also soon let him go because there wasn't enough evidence to hold him. Eventually, Sawyer would quit his job with the railroad and then return home to his family. Not surprised. I guess if you get bored, you go back to the wife. I don't know. Sure, if they take you back. <laughs> it was back then. Did the wives have any choice in that? Yeah. <laughs> so like- there, <laughs> there is a, a another potential uh, suspect. I briefly came across this right before we started recording, so I've not looked into it, but I will mention the name of the book. It's called The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. And that their speculation within the book is about a man named Paul Mueller. I didn't have a chance to look that up, but uh, it looks like an interesting book. And they say that they may have solved it by looking into this man, Paul Mueller, whom I've never heard before mentioned in correlation with this crime. But outside of that, those are all of my suspects on this list, which is probably about half the episode. You think? <laughs> I mean, it's going to be. Yeah, it's just the nature of... I mean, that's how it normally functions with yeah. everything. Uh, uh, before we get onto your topic, I just want to ask, since also Matt's in the room, he's been hearing all this. What do you guys think? Anyone in particular stand out? You think any of them did it? Out of curiosity. The only one that makes sense to me would be Jones. He has a personal vendetta against Josiah. Josiah stole his big client opened up and became his rival when he was once his worker the others don't make sense the only one with actual ties to the family 
is Jones. Technically, Reverend George, but very minorly. And also, he's whoever the killer was, they specifically bashed in Josiah's head. Well, there was a theory thrown out in the Thinking Sideways podcast episode, though I think this is completely untrue, but because I don't believe it. But apparently one of, uh, during their research, they came across one theory that the person who did the murders was Josiah himself. Well, the family- Why would he kill his family and then be killed the same night? That wasn't where they were going with it. The faces- Oh, like he had someone do it? Like he had a hitman do it? No. Oh, he that he did it for whatever reason. I don't even know what where this theory even originated from, but it was a theory that was brought up briefly. Like including the damage to himself. That he killed everyone in the house and that there was the thing is the faces were unrecognizable. Uh Dental was not going to be a thing. Fingerprints were not a thing yet. Blood analysis wasn't a thing so it's kind of like with the lizzie borden murders you know that it was mom and stepmom because of the people that lived in the house but they were so butchered you couldn't tell if you didn't know so who so we don't know that the the man in the bed was josiah but then who was it if that's the case that was my question yeah if it if josiah was the one that performed the murders and there there had to have been a guy he had to have found someone of similar height similar build similar look similar color that was not his brother yeah i've never heard ross moore being thought of well i would think i know nothing about ross moore so i can't say i'm thinking because siblings they most likely look very similar maybe they don't i could be wrong there's some families they don't look similar at all i know i'm part of one of those (laughs) yeah i've seen uh Shut up, Matt. Uh, but you also have the fact that it's Dinky Town, Iowa. Who are you going to find that looks so similar to you that once you bash their face in, they're going to be, they're going to think it's you? Yeah. I mean, I also don't know that I really even believe the fact that Josiah was having an affair with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law. I don't think it had, I, I don't think he did. And I don't think... I think that other one is bull cocky. Bull pucky. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? Uh, Jones makes the most sense. I mean, the, uh, the rest of them just kind of seem like drifters that may have been in the area and have the skills with an axe is kind of all I found, yeah. My, I'm leaning towards Jones, but given that the Cylinder sisters were also there, I mean, it was just sort of unlucky for, I mean, lucky for everybody, but unlucky particularly for the Stillinger sisters. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But did Frank Jones also have a vendetta against the Stillinger sisters? Did it specifically have to happen that particular night when the sisters were staying there? I mean, there is evidence that the sisters weren't even being, there was, it wasn't even planned that they would be there. It's more of that the families are like hey the girls want to come over and hang out can they hang out and stay over and it was kind of unexpected that's that's what i'm thinking i think it was just wrong place wrong time for them unfortunately because it's like we said this murder is premeditated it's planned 
in, and planned out. So maybe the killer thought, if I don't do it on my on that day that I plan for it, I will not do it. Possibly. I mean, it could have been a drifter as well, because there is some speculation that maybe the Cleveland Torso murders and the New Orleans Axe murders could have also been a drifter as well. There were a lot of drifters on the railroads, and Velisca had a lot of rail cars coming through daily. So it could have just been anyone, but also a actual serial killer who probably had done it before. I mean, even if Frank Jones is responsible, he may have hired, say, Mansfield, who is likely a serial killer and a drifter. So it's maybe a combination of the two. But does the house tell us anything? Uh, well, it's what happened to the house after is what we discuss after the murders. It doesn't mm-hmm. tell us much in that sense. All right. So the house went through quite a bit after those murders. Starting off with, so the house, I don't know how much you spoke about this, but the house was originally built in 1868 purchased i thought you did okay maybe i'm just crazy okay it doesn't really matter but purchased by josiah b moore in 1903 obviously nine years later is when they were murdered and the house after the murders the house went into a state until 1915 in 1915 the house was purchased by a man named j.h giesman don't know much about the guy just know that it was there And within a 90-year period, this house went through seven other owners, at least. Some do say it's an evil house, but I think that's more of a modern take. I don't know. I don't know if it's an evil house or if it's just, you know, haunted. Well, I think it, it, it also has the reputation of being a murder house. And I don't know that necessarily a lot of people wanted to live in a place where eight people were murdered. I know I wouldn't because I do believe in ghosts. I worked in the Queen Mary, so do I. But that doesn't mean I won't live in a murder house. I've lived in haunted houses. I've li- I've lived in houses where people have died, not intentionally. I don't mind living in a house where people have died. I have too. I don't want to live in a house where people were murdered. That's bad. Distinction. Juice. Fair point. Yes. Like, my, my grandmother passed away in her house, and I lived in that house. I guarantee she was haunting that house until the day I freaking left. I, I've been to that house many times. Yes, you have. And I guarantee it, because my cat would stare at one section of the house at one point at night, every single night. There was nothing there. So I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I just personally wouldn't want to live in a house where people were murdered. That's a little too haunty for me. Yeah. Okay. So one of the actual owners was the Velisca State Savings and Loan Company. They were actually on the title. So yeah, this house went from person to person to loan to estate. Just kind of went around, unfortunately for it. In 1971, the house was titled to Kendrick and Vance. And then only a month later did Darwin Kendrick, I guess the Kendrick of Kendrick and Vance, get the title. He was the only one that remained on the title. 
Vance must have, I don't know, up and left probably. Too creepy for him or something. I'm not sure. His name remained on the title of the house until 1994. Literally the first day of 1994, January 1st, 1994, Rick and Vicki Sprague bought the house from Darwin Kendrick. And then someone else named Darwin Lynn ended up purchasing the property by pure accident. And by pure accident? Yeah. A real estate agent approached this man named Darwin Lynn about the property in hopes that he would purchase it. And, well, Darwin was not really interested. And what he did was he actually gave a really low offer on the property and said, the offer expires at midnight. After that, no chance, no deal. I'm out. Well, he uh, forgot about it. And, well, when he got the call saying he was now the proud owner of the Velisca Axe Murder House, he was like, uh, excuse me, what? Because it was a thought, and it went in and out and left. He ended up telling his wife a few months later, her name was Martha Lynn, and what they decided to do was restore it, because over those 90 years before that, the, uh, Let's say that house changed quite a bit, quite a bit. A lot of people had changed it up. There at one time had been a porch. That porch was boarded up, not really boarded up, but built on, like they made it into an enclosed porch, I guess you could say. And they added electricity and plumbing, modern, modern electricity and plumbing, previous owners had. And he and his wife actually decided to return the house to the original condition that it was in when the murders happened in 1912. That means they needed to rebuild an outhouse. They needed to take out everything that had been added in, like a bathroom and things such as that, and the electricity. And they also rented out the house to make funds in order to restore the house. So they rented it out first before they any did any restoration. So there were several people that lived in that house because they had very short-term tenants. Again, wouldn't want to live in a house that people had been murdered in either. So what, what the Lynns did was using the old photographs of the house, they started to do the restoration of it when they could, a little here and a little there, uh, reopened the porches so that you could actually see them, added in those... Uh, added in that outhouse, took out the plumbing, took out the electricity, actually. Uh, there was the pantry in the house what had been converted to a bathroom, so they removed that. And they also placed furniture in the house in approximately the exact same place where they had been when the murders occurred. They went off of testimonies, pictures, as police reports, as much as they could to get it restored to its 1912 formation basically interesting mm -hmm. and in 1998 the home was added to the national register of historic places actually so it's it's now on the national registry it also received a preservation at its best award from the iowa historic preservation in 1997 
you can now go tour the home. It's basically a, a museum style now. And uh, they kind of also built out different parts of the house, the lens, by the way. Uh, they, they even did out like the cellar at the bottom of, underneath the house to make it a little bit less creepy. Although cellars are creepy in general without electricity. I mean, even, even with electricity, <laughs> cellars are just creepy. But yeah, so the house went through quite a bit. Renovations, changes, uh, removals, ups and downs, lots of tenants, lots of owners. And uh, that is the story of the Villisca Axe Murder House. You, you can also that? go there <laughs> and spend the night. No, thanks. I'll leave that one to you. If you want to watch videos of... Uh people looking for ghosts you can go to i know ghost adventures was there can't guarantee that's anything adequate i don't i trust ghost adventures as much as i can throw them basically that means not at all oh no not after the crap they pulled at the queen mary i don't think so no i'm good with that one thank you but i knew what was it dead files actually i think did an episode there too that was a really interesting one i like that but yeah. i like dead files yeah i don't so, know if taps went there but there have been plenty of ghost investigation groups there but they don't do that much i think i don't know that they do that much anymore because it just seemed to stir up a lot of stuff that would seem right but yep that's the end of uh our ghostly story here <laughs> yeah i mean i would love i mean partly for the history partly for the true crime partly just because of the reputation of the house i would go and check it out but it's also old arch edwardian i mean actually it's it, it's old victorian-esque architecture and i like architecture i'll go to the house in broad daylight you just can't get me to spend the night i'm not sure if you can spend the, the night. night anymore i don't know if they've stopped doing that i know you can do tours and maybe night tours i'm not sure if they have hold on over still i'm on their page give me a second <laughs> Tours and overnights. Oh, okay. Overnight tours are by reservation only. Yep. Yes. So you still can, you can still stay there. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I'm going to let you do that one. Oh, I'll do it. I know you will. That's why I'll let you do it. And you, you can call me with the details after. <laughs> Presuming <laughs> I'm alive. I'm sorry. Could you say that? If she can. Yeah. Presumably. If I can what? If you can call me with the details after. Oh, that's it. That's exactly what at the same time you said. I was like, presuming I'm alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, this is why I will let you do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm outie on that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll go in daylight. I feel like I would need the power of raw. Jeez. <laughs> well, you know, me, I like dead things. I do too. Spirits, ghosts don't really bother me. Never had any. I mean, I, I do. Yeah, I've had some weird I experiences, do. but I'm just like you. I just like the ones that have been dead for millennia and their souls have most likely already moved on. <laughs> you know, like Tutankhamun, Nefertiti, Akhenaten, Ramses Third, Moses. I can keep going here. <laughs> 
but I think that'll do for uh, this week. It's been a long one. Oh, really? I feel like this is starting a new thing where we do really long episodes now. Let's not do that. That'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. Bye-bye. Bye, Matt. Bye.